Welcome to 10 CDs for a Penny, the show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. I'm Jackson Maine. This episode, we're talking about Spin Magazine, September 1991, with Prince on the cover. And we are not talking about Prince at all, because it's September 1991, and culture is about to change. In this issue, there is an article on Fugazi. And Fugazi don't even want to be in this magazine. And I had the unique, amazing opportunity to get to interview Joe Lally of Fugazi for this episode. So that is coming up. But also, it's September 1991. Culture is about to explode. Culture is totally about to change this month. And why? Because Nirvana Nevermind is released in September 1991. So you might think it's hyper-specific for us to be discussing it, but it isn't. Because it's the month that the 90s were born, in my opinion. Decades aren't born the second that the clock turns 12 on New Year's Eve, January 1st. They have to be created. The 60s were born when the Beatles exploded. The 90s were born when Nirvana exploded. And when Nirvana exploded, they all of a sudden took a score of alternative bands with them. People that were hovering just under the underground, just under the surface, waiting for that opportunity. One band took them all with them. And they took Fugazi with them too. And every label was scrambling to sign bands. They tried to sign Fugazi, but it did not work, obviously. So we talk a lot about this era, a lot about this hyper-specific era that is September 1991. And we also get to interview Joe from Fugazi. And he talks all about his career at this time and leading up to it and surrounding it. So we go deep on this era. But I understand if you don't even care about what we have to say and you just want to listen to Joe because, let's be honest, it's Joe from Fugazi. So if you want to skip to that, it's about 54 minutes into the episode. Just go for it. But we do have a great discussion about everything. I hope you stick around for it. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into September 1991 Spin Magazine and the specific amazing moment that it was. Welcome back to Pod. This episode we're doing September 1991 Spin Magazine. I have Noyan Hilmi with me here. Hey, how you doing? And I have uh, Alexander Rishko as well. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me, guys. It's been a long time coming. I'm really glad to have you on the pod uh, finally, Al. And yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a, a great episode. We're going to be talking about uh, Fugazi coming up. But uh, first, yeah, this is September 1991. This is a really special issue. I picked this because I got the opportunity to interview Joe Lally from Fugazi for this episode. So I had to pick an issue with Fugazi featured in it. But all of a sudden, I quickly realized that it was September 1991. And this was the month that Nirvana Nevermind got released. Now, it was kind of a quiet release. It wasn't really hitting big until, you know, October, November. But this just to me, like just to quickly put in perspective like in my opinion this is the month that the 90s were born that you know like this is when you know you always see from decade to decade you know the carry through of the last decade bands like motley crew were still getting released uh i think this month there was still that hangover from the 80s and hip-hop was on the rise it was getting really big as well there's an an even a 
an article in this issue about Yo MTV Raps and how popular a show that was and how popular hip-hop had become. And it was still fairly, I don't want to say underground because it, it wasn't really. It would just wasn't getting popularized. But this month, things are about to change dramatically. And I look at what's in this issue. There's There's an article on NWA. There's an article. There's a cover story on Prince. Now, Prince kind of never went away, <laughs> but, you know, he had his big moment in the 80s and then just kind of had waves throughout. But alternative culture was about to explode. And we have this article as well on Fugazi in here. Now, we can get to talking about Fugazi in a little bit, but I kind of just want to talk about what was happening this month. And, like, what what's your what do you guys think about this, like, explosion that's about to happen well in 91 i guess they were reaching for a lot of things trying to find out how to fill gaps and uh credibility became a big issue so that's why you had uh you know the first time you asked me to come on here i was like what fugazi got interviewed by spin (laughs) i didn't even believe it i was i just didn't understand because it's not really a magazine that I went through a lot because it was all over the place. Like, like you said, it's like Wayne Newton is in this Prince NWA Fugazi and it's Pearl jam. Yeah. Even and it's uh, like, what do you, what do you, tr- what kind of magazine is this? Yeah. Even the like, guns and roses article. Yeah, Gloria not- Estefan. Yeah. yeah. So people are buying this for one page articles or something, or I don't really <laughs> understand what they were going for, to be honest. But well, so know. I think that's what it would be like, just confusion of where it's going next. Well, is it, is it spin basically trying like having their own identity crisis until alternative music actually, actually takes shape and they just jump onto that and be like, Oh, this is our identity. We need to, we need to like make this our mandate, you know, like once alternative music finally, takes hold then they're like okay well this is what's interesting this is what's hot let's let's make this an alternative music magazine i can't i never saw a spin magazine before september 1991 to be honest i have no idea what it looked like but i think that when you kind of flip through this magazine you get a really really good sense of what it was right it's just what was big what this is like almost like a watered down billboard magazine right like it's all really really popular stuff there's a little bit of stuff that's slowly bubbling up to the surface um and uh yeah i think that this is this is probably a really really important issue in spins history as well like this is kind of a turning point for them as well as i think like it was like culturally everything was shifting right this is groundbreaking there's a whole new musical genre that's about to take shape that's that's going to be an era you know it's 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 very strange that's a really good point you brought up that spin was having its own identity crisis and maybe they were waiting for this moment when i look at it in the 80s you know this magazine would have been six years old by 1991 i think the first person on their cover ever was madonna uh so in 1985 i feel like they wanted to cover they wanted to cover alternative culture as much as they could, but they also had to sell magazines. So 
I remember reading really old spins, maybe like 85, 86 era with with Husker Du interviews. So Husker Du would have been like a fairly popular sort of underground act at the time. So I think they were trying to cover that, but they obviously had to sell magazines. Now they are about to get their chance to just solely focus on the underground. Alex, I will note uh, if the very front of this magazine that Legs McNeil at the time was yep. one of the editors. Legs McNeil founded Punk Magazine in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Legs McNeil may be the person who coined the phrase punk. <laughs> Debatably. Yeah, it's, it's, that's always debatable. Exactly. That's, you know. And he's editing. Yeah, we weren't around then, so it's like that's read, – read any book you want that will support your idea basically. But, you know, that is an interesting point that he is the he is the editor at this point. And yeah, that's funny, too. Like, that's a pretty big, you know, because eventually we're going to get back to the Pugazi thing. But that's, you know, a credibility issue to begin with, you know, for him, I'm sure. I think but he was there. I don't know what kind of benefits he needed for his family or, you know, <laughs> what was going on there, right? I mean, I don't think he was going to be writing Punk Magazine for the rest of his life. I think he graduated. Yeah, I don't know how much of a shelf life that uh, but yeah, now now spin is just you're you're right. It's gonna get their chance, and alternative culture, whatever you want to call that, is about to explode. You're about to have Nirvana, and they're about to take everybody with them. Noyan, did you happen to see at the very start of the magazine a little kind of a side blurb about a band, to, an up and coming band to watch, Pearl Jam? Yeah, that's a that's a nice little snippet there, actually, and, and it's so funny what the 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 writers like chooses to focus on it's not a very long piece and it's mostly about what they choose to wear or they're they're in a department store or something um, and it has like a really really quick bio about them um it's a nice little piece it, it honestly the the quotes from them come off really really well like they seem like humble dudes that are just like you know want to make good music and stuff but you know I, I don't know. I love seeing those tiny little snippets about a about a band that is like nothing, not even like close to being on the radar yet. Yeah, that would have been really early on too, right? So, but it's funny how how would they even get that spot in the magazine? Because there were so many bands that were so similar. You know, I'm just wondering how they got chosen. I I got to guess that you know, it's. Because the the writer does reference, you know, like Temple of the Dog, Mother Love Bone. Mm-hmm. If Spin Magazine was, you know, you know, having articles on Husker Du or whatever, and trying to like be on the edge of emerging music, then I gotta imagine that they were writing a bit here and there about those bands, about you know, like Mud Honey or the Melvins, uh, you know, these bands here and there. And there's little nuggets of that scene that were probably popping up already, right? So I think that, you know, talking about the latest band that's connected to all those bands probably isn't too foreign, right? Well, was Sub Pop, you know, that was like the cool indie label to kind of latch onto that was underground. And they even say in that Pearl Jam article, they, they kind of are snotty about it, saying like, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that... Seattle is the coolest place right now and everything is happening there. 
and I think you would have had to have been in the know, I assume, at that point to to know that and know that like sub pop was this this kind of hit factory of alternative and punk coming out of the late eighties. And I mean they okay, so I mean like they are they're a music magazine, so they obviously have their finger on the pulse. They know what's happening. Grunge's big year was nineteen ninety two. This is just nineteen ninety one. Things are just bubbling to the surface. Pearl Jam has just released that record. I looked this up. This is a weird thing. I I'm I'm shocked about this. Is that Pearl Jam Ten was released in August nineteen ninety one. They're just featured right now. At this point, they're on tour. I think or about to go on tour with the Chili Peppers. So it's like Chili Peppers, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, and them. So they're just like a second act band, an opening band. They ten did not enter the charts, the Billboard charts, until, like, January of 1992. So they had one single, I think was maybe Alive, and then the rest of the singles were all 1992. That was their big year. Everybody, I always think of 1991 as this, like, big seminal year for grunge and, like, Nirvana and Pearl Jam getting released, but really, they got released late in the year and didn't catch on until 1992. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, even if you if you watch the Alive video, it doesn't really... I don't really feel like it's a game-changing kind of song because of Pearl Jam's style was... You know, like, grunge is such a weird thing anyway, right? Like, every band in that era has a different grunge sound. You know, like, I think Pearl Jam was playing with these, like, funky bass lines and stuff and totally, like crazy like almost schlocky guitar solos that's like the opposite of nirvana it's the opposite right so having them both be quote-unquote grunge bands of the same you know musical style is a pretty hilarious thing anyway it's literally just a geographical you know sound it, it they don't they don't make sense honestly if you had a bill where pearl jam and nirvana were on the same bill Sure, they both play guitar music, but they don't make sense together at all. That's my opinion. Right, of course. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, they just happen to be from the same town. I mean, you know, not to get into a huge grunge conversation, but I think we've all seen people say in the past 30 years, it really had very little to do with the town. There was just a bunch of bands that got big out of there. They didn't necessarily all sound the same. And people like Mudhoney who were kind of the cornerstone, the start of grunge, really got left behind. They tried and tried and tried to push them, but they never got the, the big, you know, major label popularity as Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Nirvana. And all those They definitely got really left good. behind, yeah. I don't know, they, they, I don't know, maybe they weren't the radio band. Maybe they didn't, their timing on their record releases or their cycles you know like the the mud honey that i know is all pretty rad um but maybe they didn't get the right deal maybe they didn't play the game you know maybe they didn't have the right manager working these deals for them or whatever right so who knows what all the little nuances of their history are yeah they just didn't have the right producer i don't think yeah they were i think there's they're probably pretty happy as well though right because some people just don't want that peak you know, I'm sure there were days like, look where a lot of these guys ended up, right? Yeah. It didn't end well. Yeah. Mostly so maybe yeah. Mark's happy working at Sub Pop, you know? 
yeah, or absolutely. at the warehouse or something. Yeah, of course. So who knows? But they obviously didn't get that for sure. Yeah, not everyone wants to be a huge star, right? Yeah, no, exactly, for sure. I think that's pretty much the point of the Fugazi article. Yeah, it's a pretty it's like, good segue in, isn't it, Alf? Like if we look at Yeah. If we look at all these bands, you know, we have the the Pearl Jam kind of band who definitely wanted to be like they were you know, piggybacking off like a stadium rock sound. These guys knew what they were doing. They yeah. knew the kind of success they wanted. We had Nirvana, which we could obviously debate back and forth about what Kurt really wanted. I mean, if he wanted to, I think he wanted success, but I don't think he really wanted the success that he got. It's pretty obvious. And then we have Fugazi. We have this Fugazi article. I'm going to lay it out for some context here. This Fugazi interview and article is one of the most interesting things i've ever read in my entire life because if you know fugazi they really don't care about any sort of mainstream success and this entire article was about how they did not want to get interviewed by spin (laughs) so there's literally a million bands in america who would just love to get interviewed by spin and get some get some mainstream push and some mainstream uh, success out of it and get a voice to America and Fugazi, they're just like, they're literally arguing with them <laughs> to get them to do it, and they keep saying no, and so they basically form a, an article around this. The entire article is about the interviewer chasing them down, and them pretty much just insulting Spin and saying they they, you know, they they don't hate they're they're not a hateful band and they're not like so shitty and punk that they want to insult people, but they also have their ideals and their priorities and one is ian mckay is i guess at least straight edge or whatever you want to call it by this time he's saying in this article how disgusted he is by cigarette and alcohol ads and pretty much saying if you take the cigarette and alcohol ads out of your magazine then i'll do an interview with you but uh he just can't be bothered in the joe interview that we're gonna have in this episode he doesn't like the definer of post-hardcore. What kind of band is Fugazi, Al? Post-hardcore, for sure. <laughs> you think they're post-hardcore? So, but I, well, that's what they they are defined as, right? But Do you think they're art, I would say art rock? That they are, yeah, I would say closer to art rock. They're a band who didn't want to be Pearl Jam. They didn't want to get big. They wanted to throw their own shows. And an article in Spin makes that harder to do because more people are going to come. It's the same thing when you throw a punk show. You don't want you want people to show up, but there's a fine line that you don't want the police to show up and get the noise complaint. So they're walking this ridiculously tight line internationally. And I don't know how they did it, but they did. It's actually really funny in this article when I talked to Joe they were playing at Columbia University and he said they kind of had to continue to play Columbia University every time they came to New York because there was no other venue that they could go into. (laughs) They were already big enough at this point. They, I don't know if they had gone gold by this point, but this is a band that released their own records on their own label, did all their own tour management. They managed the entire band by themselves, booked all their own tours, 
They did their own taxes. Uh, they hauled their own gear. They had no roadies. I think they had a sound guy, and that was it, because he recorded all the shows for them. That was pretty much the entirety of this band. And they couldn't play any venues because most promoters uh, wouldn't let them play because they had to charge more than $5. These guys would not charge more than $5 for a show so everyone could come. So he said they always had to play at Columbia University because it was the only big enough venue to put them. They had this big a fan base. They had no major label support. They had no marketing. They ma- didn't make T-shirts. They didn't even sell their records at the show because that was just too hard for them. And yeah, and then you're it's you know then you're basically relying on a people who are local to throw these big shows, and it's a lot on them. It's a lot to ask of some guy who's just a local guy to throw a show for his band who's in spin, right? So it's it's on them as well to hey lay back if that's what you want to do, because you're gonna start getting these shows that are massive. And uh, the cost to put them on is too much. You could just like cripple some kid financially who wants to throw on a punk show. Mm-hmm. It's it's ridiculous. But it's not their fault. It was just you know, Spin was looking for the big thing. Yeah. And so so they were searching, and I think they were saying, "Hey, please no." Yeah. You know, and we'll talk to you at the show. We'd love to speak with you, but. You know, it's just not, this is not our space, right? So that's what I got from it. Jackson, what you just rhymed off basically is is pretty much uh, how to not get successful. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> basically, every single thing you said there is like the opposite of what a band tries to do or tries to obtain. Like tr- they try and get a manager, they try to get a tour manager, they get merch they don't do all this stuff themselves they you know like try to build relationships with venues you know like they just seem like they were super um dedicated to you know being that band that just started out like you know i don't alex i don't know if you've been in a band but i know that you know jackson i've been in bands but i it's you basically described like the first like four months of my band career you know like you don't have anything. You're doing everything yourself. You're playing these crappy little rooms. It's like a hundred. It's a Masonic lodge or something like that. And it's all super fun. And honestly, if you could just keep doing that and make it a career, it actually would be pretty fun. You know, it's just other bands are generally a little bit more ambitious, right? And these guys were, were I, I, I absolutely wholeheartedly respect that they just stuck to their guns. And they were like, this is the way we want to do it, and we're just gonna stay that way. That's that's really cool. Well, to answer your question, I was in a band with Jackson. <laughs> we only played locally in art galleries and the weirdest spots you can imagine. But it, it is fun. That's like those are the funnest shows. I'm, yeah. I don't think it's that. I really don't think it's think it's that fun to go on tour for ages as a middle of the road band. I think the best fun you're going to have is the local shows. I, I can agree with that. I feel, I feel like there's a middle ground, right? I think like, like being totally sick of being on the road is, you know, I, I have a lot of friends, bands that basically they went on, out on tour and they basically came back and that, that did them in, you know, they basically went out on one West coast tour and 
it's it's hell, right? It's really grinding, and that basically it's a make or break kind of situation for a band. Um, I think that you know, like playing locally, playing these fun shows to teenagers that are really excited to see you all ages. They're buying up your merch. You hang out. You like that's super fun. You know, just most of the time, you you start setting your sights to being like, hey, it'd be really cool if we played the horseshoe. Hey, we play the horseshoe. It'd be really cool to open for um, this cool band that I really like coming through. And it just keeps kind of growing from there. That's the normal trajectory of, of bands, right? Um, and I think yeah. that, you know, part of the respect for Fugazi is that they just did their own thing. And it's like, wow, these guys don't want to be popular. They really don't want to do anything that you're supposed to do. And that's Fugazi's legacy, basically. Right, because there are people who will do that, and not because the the other path is so everybody knows. You get a booking agent, you get this, whatever this, that. But that's also a dead end career as well, right? So either way, they're dead end careers. So pick one that's fun. That's it's really, I always thought, but our it's really funny because he didn't. He wanted to make money, right? In the band and in music, which is totally fine. You get to an age where you need benefits. And I think that's why Sonic Youth signed to DGC. And everybody right. followed. And that's what happened. Those DIY shows that, you know, I put on and Alex and I have played, you always you could always get people out if you just did five dollar shows at a venue where anyone could get in. So it's way more flattering for a band as a young band at least, and maybe a band that's not hoping for a ton of success like Alex and I were, we just wanted to play to a crowd. And when you get that opportunity and you're not trying to like just play the horseshoe in Toronto, which is like, you know, the nice mid-sized club and, and, you know, expecting people to show up to pay like 10 bucks or something like that. And you're just on like some weeknight when you can get a Saturday night at a DIY space and just advertise and say it's five bucks, bring your own beer or don't. Nothing's yeah. like anything's possible, and you just have that crowd. That's what's great. Like I never gave a shit about playing a bigger venue yeah. to no one and try to use it as a stepping stone because it just sucked playing to no yeah. one. It was so much fun. But that's what we call it. A big sell party. at the lost records. We didn't like. It's that's not what we were in it for, and that's fine. But that sometimes gets called lazy or whatever. But it's not. That doesn't mean like Fugazi was lazy no, or the hardest stuck working up. They didn't want to do this, right? And I think they would have loved to talk to this interviewer at length about whatever you wanted to. But just come to the show. Like I think in the article they actually said, "Hey, we're going to be here. Why don't you come out? We'll talk to you." Mm-hmm. And the times like you know when I saw Ian play. The guy sticks around forever and speaks to every last person, you know, and we'll take photographs or you could do a photograph with him or, you know, be like, hey, do you mind standing there and setting something up? Like, it's all stuff that doesn't work if you're getting a booking agent. All that stuff vanishes. So I think it's just kind of, you know, I just, it's the same thing. It's like, why I'm doing this kind of is because I was like, what? They did an interview with Spin? Yeah. 
And he kind of got me because they really didn't do an interview span. They kind of they didn't popped at the movie. <laughs> but Fugazi, I think the the very core of it, they just wanted to be in total control of their band, and that was that was the 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 end of the story. They just wanted to do whatever they wanted, and they did. They ran their own label. They recorded with essentially the same producer every time. They played. They booked their own tours. They had no one telling them what to do. And I think that's the the whole point of it. Now, Fugazi, I feel, are a very unique band in the sense that, number one, Fugazi was born out of Ian Mackay, who was in Minor Threat before. So he was in this seminal, seminal hardcore punk band that everyone knew like in that community they weren't like a big popular band but they were one of the biggest hardcore bands i mean essentially they were the first hardcore band if you want to like debate around it so here's a guy who just ended up being at the forefront of like creating a genre and then after that he created this other band that was in my opinion really like no other band at least at the time obviously there was influence after that you listen to fugazi maybe they don't sound as unique as they did in 1987 88 because people have copied them but it just ended up being that this guy everybody wanted to see what ian was doing next and then he did this incredible thing and then you know a lot of eyes were on washington dc because they had this punk scene that a lot of people were waiting to see what else was coming out of it and then they created fugazi and then shunned everything you're supposed to do like in a band to make it and they they went gold with their with repeater their first record they sold like 500,000 copies of that in like a short amount of time so that's why all of a sudden spin had their eyes on them they're like how are these guys doing this essentially they have they're they're total in total control of themselves they have no marketing or no push at all it's absolutely incredible and yeah, I, I think it was the, the network effect of you know punk rock kind of spilled into hardcore and that kind of spilt into post-hardcore. And then all of a sudden, I guess there was enough people just based on that social circle to sell whatever it takes to create a gold record. I don't even know what it is, but, you know, it's just one friend tells another, another, and, you know, yeah. that's what it is. But I don't, I don't, I bet if you asked them, how did you get a gold record? They'd be like, I have no idea. When well, I they hear... say word of mouth advertising is the best form of advertising, right? You spend zero dollars on it. You just play good music and people are going to talk about you. And all these things that these guys didn't do also became a topic of conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's what they didn't do, probably, especially when people couldn't wrap their heads around turning down money for some reason in the 90s. It just was a foreign concept and if you got played in a sneaker ad your band was done yeah right or something but it, it was just it was just a, it was a different time right and then now it's all about getting into a movie or having your music uh placed or whatever they you know i don't know any of the terminology they use but you yeah, know I'll it's you. uh it's just a different different opportunity and different way Here's a question for you guys, because in the past 20 years, there has been a massive influx in bands reuniting. 
So, and it's funny because when we look at like kind of the history of music or like pop music or, you know, the past few eras, you know, we've always kind of been waiting for some bands to reunite. And we kind of just started seeing it in the 90s because we had just gotten to that point of like, you know, bands from the 60s and 70s have happened and then we want to see them reunite. And then with festivals, that's that's their entire mandate is is reuniting bands to get people to come out to the festivals now it seems so it just kind of like you're always waiting for to see who is going to reunite and fugazi is the one that every year everyone's going will they reunite (laughs) because they went on an indefinite hiatus in 2003 which pretty much means they broke up and you know as i'll talk to joe about in the interview coming up there's a bit of a never say never but you know, ultimately, it would have to be like an absolute perfect storm for it to happen. Sh- here's here's a big question. Sh- number one, should bands reunite? <laughs> and number two, who do you want to? Who do you think should reunite? I'm gonna say I, yes and Fugazi. <laughs> and I think who is it? The now? Wayne Newton article in the Spin magazine is perfect because I think that's the way they should do it play a club in Washington, like a residency, play it all year long, every Tuesday you want, $5. People will travel to come see them at this point, right? They put in the hard work, they deserve it. So I, I would like to see them do it. But as far as like the getting the big cash out and playing a festival, I don't know. People want to see them, you know, it helps, you know. I know we'll go pay money to see them. Yeah, I'll pay five dollars. But that's pretty much all you can. That's all you can do to them, right? And I'm pretty sure that's all they would want, right? It's you like, know, hey, I'll go see you. In the what if world, I I honestly am so curious as to what they would sound like, what kind of music they would make, all that kind of stuff. Had they decided to to sign a deal to to potentially you know, work with producers and all that. Like, I I feel like One Direction would potentially go that it would flop, right? Because what made them special would be taken away from them. 100%. It pretty yeah. much always happens mm-hmm. that way. We, like, people, we've seen it a hundred times in our lifetime. That band that we liked a lot that got scooped up by a major label, and it wasn't that they were selling out, it's just that they put out two records before that that were their own production that they really worked hard on that was really personal to them. And then all of a sudden they got scooped up by a label because that's what you're supposed to do. Like that's what you're pretty much 99.9% of bands are striving to do. You know, take that next step and get signed to a label and then it gets taken all away from them because all of a sudden the, the label has the idea of what they want them to be. I mean, we've talked about this on practically every episode of this podcast, but that's what happens. And so that's exactly what Fugazi didn't want to happen with them. And it wouldn't have been special because it just would have been exactly taken away from them. I'd love to see a breakdown. You know, this would never happen, but because they did everything themselves and, you know, they take 100% of whatever revenue comes in from their records and probably get a bigger cut from their five dollar shows and stuff like what their like their income is relative to 
an artist that gets the big loan from the record label and basically is working to pay back that record deal loan and how that all kind of like flushes out because if Fugazi was selling half a million records like from a DIY kind of perspective like they had to be doing pretty well too right they would be killing it now with Bandcamp and iTunes and getting 100% of that money 100% they would be killing it there's something to be considered here that this is like a 30 year difference so we're talking about 1991 versus 2021 and in 2021 you know no one's buying music and fugazi had the advantage of 30 years ago where you had to buy music and you wanted to support that person so you really wanted to have that physical copy having physical music at the time was i don't want to say a badge of honor but you know you had a collection that you wanted to have and that's kind of lost at this moment. I mean, we're talking about a time when you had to buy music as opposed to a time where you don't have to buy music. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult conversation to have because now, yes, we can just listen to Bandcamp for free. It's out there. Bands can put out their own music and produce their own music. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to buy it. <laughs> I, do, I do think it was really cool when, when if we wanted to listen to a band, we had to have a copy or we had to dub it like onto a cassette from our friend or something like that. And that's, and when you had that, you, you spent your money on it. Right. So you actually took the time to listen to it. If you really, really didn't like it, you, tr you basically tried to like it and you, if you didn't like it, then you probably sold it or gave it away or something. Right. But what you had was really, really important to you. You sat there with the physical liner notes. You might've read the lyrics, you know, like, I, I know that I sat on my bed looking at liner notes like when I was in high school, like all the time. And it was really, really important. I don't know. You can't do that when you're streaming something on Spotify. Like I know that people can still have a really, really deep connection to, to certain songs and albums and everything, but you know, like clicking on it versus waiting for it release day and rushing to the mall and, <laughs> And like, here's my $14 or whatever it is, right? Like, or $20. I don't know. I feel like you're, you're investing a lot more into that one album more so than what people are doing today. But did we all really like Pearl Jam as much as we think we did? Or is it because <laughs> we paid $14 and we played it on repeat? Because we were never going to let that money slip away because it was all we had. And we kind of forced ourselves into liking these things. You know, but yeah. this, is, this is also a, a strange question because you're brainwashed well, by radio. I can, you... I can totally answer that by saying Pearl Jam is a good sounding band. And obviously they had a ton of marketing support behind them that all of a sudden, you know, when they started getting big, then they had MTV and they had a major label support pushing them. But Fugazi, I wanted to say that they were a band that got big just by being that good. I mean, there was a lot of good bands out there. There's no denying that. And there's a lot of shitty bands out there. And either one of those bands got big because of major label support and a bit of luck but fugazi were a band that were just that good and that's the bottom line
like they had no marketing, they had nothing, they just had word of mouth, and people just latched onto them because they were that fucking awesome. <laughs> I know, but Pearl Jam's definitely not on the opposite end of the spectrum here either, right? Like this is a band that they made three music videos and then said we're not making music videos anymore. When at a time music videos were essentially the main commercial for your music, right? How much did the record label hate that? I'm sure they really hated it, you know, <laughs> but they still sold a lot of records despite that, right? You know, so they're kind of like in in between. Pearl Jam is a difficult example. You're absolutely right. And it is and it is kind of uh, a difficult example because of what you just said, Noyan. We, we were talking about a band like Fugazi who shunned any sort of marketing support and then we have a band like Pearl Jam that at the height of music videos, like we're talking about getting into the 90s here, man. It was absolutely all about music videos pushing you. And a band that was, after their first record, did not make music videos. And their second record versus, I can't remember the exact stat, but it was the fastest selling to number one record in history, I'm pretty sure. They sold like it was nine- like the fastest selling million copies, I yeah. believe. I think they sold like 900,000 copies in a week, something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Without a music video, just being that good. So, you know, it's a difficult example to bring up Pearl Jam in that respect as well. But, but you know, Eddie Vedder um, loved Fugazi, loved. So I'm sure that there's, like, I know that Pearl Jam is a, a big band that was mainstream, but they pulled a lot of the, you know, the ideologies from bands like Fugazi, right? You, you, why do you, they they fought Ticketmaster? Like, who the hell was fighting Ticketmaster, right? They they went to court to fight Ticketmaster and actually represent other bands and the industry and put themselves out there like that. I don't know. I can I can argue for Pearl Jam in 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 many different ways, right? Like, I know they're not everyone's bag, but. Um, I think they did a lot of really cool things that were um, of the same mindset as Fugazi, just on a different kind of level. Like Fugazi was really intense about <laughs> what they were doing, right? Yeah, 100%. It actually is a really good example that we're talking about a band like Pearl Jam who have this other blurb in this magazine. But they did, you're right, they did a lot of good things. As a major, as a giant major label band, as the biggest band of of the 1990s, probably, they did do a lot of things against the establishment, which is commendable. Well, if they're, you know, if they couldn't have Fugazi, they needed another band that would fit that, hey, we're not going to do what you're told to do. It's like they could take those ethics and implant them in another band. I'm not ripping on them for any reason, but it's not hard to take, hey, you guys won't do it. We'll find a band that will. So you don't know how much of that is, you know, forced on a band, how much of it isn't, because it obviously worked. You know, like you, like the examples are, where did, where did, so every three minutes that the, their new video wasn't getting played, there was probably an MTV story about, how, why we can't play this video is because they won't make one because they hate us. Which, of course, everybody likes the bad guy, right, when you're a team. But I, so, so that works almost better as a marketing tool. But because it's always like, how the hell did you sell that many records? 
it's always some kind of marketing trick. I don't think Fugazi would have ever done that, but I don't even know if Pearl Jam were conscious of them knowing they were doing that. But it might have been someone who was like pulling the strings from above, you know? I, I don't hate that band, by the way. I don't. Me neither. So before we wrap this up, guys, and we go to the Joe Lally interview, I want to just rhyme off what was number one in the charts i usually kind of have this segment where we kind of guess and joke around but i just want to go through the top 10 at the time you know it's not surprising obviously a lot of these and every time we do these billboards it's again like not really surprising to to see what is number one and what is top what is in the top 10 and you know i i think we all know where this is going Obviously, like within the next year, like into 1992, we're going to get some big number ones that are very unexpected, like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and bands like this. But there's always going to be big pop bands and there's always going to be country artists and things like that that are going to be dominant in charts. But I just wanted to show you uh, the top 10 before we go to that in Billboard. Now, obviously, Prince is on the cover of this issue. uh, So... You know, I, I don't remember a lot of Prince in the 90s. He wasn't exactly a dominant force. And it, it of course, really illustrates, like, what they're talking about. Like, the, you know, like the 80s bleeding into the 90s. But I really want to show you the top 10. There's some pretty cool stuff here. N- number 10 is Roll the Bones by Rush. I looked this up. I... I sort of remember this single, and if you looked up Roll the Bones, the, the lead single off of this record, you'd probably, you'd probably recognize it. Uh, there's some very bad 90s mullity rush in this video. <laughs> it's not classic hard-rocking rush. It's kind of stupid rush. But nevertheless, they're in the top 10. I would not expect Rush to be in the top 10, but they have a giant fan base, so we get it. I would have never, ever have guessed that they would crack the top 10 in 1991. <laughs> I mean, coming out of the 70s and 80s, you could kind of get it, and they just had, like, Russia just, they have this giant militant fan base, so I can I can understand it, but I totally agree with you, Noyan. I don't, I don't believe that I'm seeing this in the, them in the top 10 in 1991. But again, we think of 1991 as Pearl Jam and Nirvana. It's not there yet. We're, we're on our way. Number nine is Out of Time by R.E.M. They're 27 weeks on the charts right now. That's pretty cool. I, I feel like that's like the precursor of grunge and alternative kind of making a bigger play in people's like hearts and minds, right? Right. That's a big one for sure. I think country feedback's on that. I'm not sure that that's one of my favorite R.E.M. songs. They were going to guess which way things were going. That fits in. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that's one point of they got the right direction where they were going. So minus one for Rush and plus one for Number. I like Rush too. Canada. I know. Shout out to Canada. Shout out to Rush. There's nothing wrong with Rush. Yeah, Canada. I mean, you know, every band has its peaks and valleys. Roll the bones. Light way of putting it. <laughs> uh, then we have number eight, guys. Time, Love, and Tenderness by Michael Bolton. Mm. 
which <laughs> makes sense. Of course, Michael Bolton's on. I think I heard that one in a dentist chair once. I, I feel like I feel like Michael Bolton being in that top ten is I've read that so many times about like what was on the charts right before Nirvana, you know, made their splash. It's it's the it's the like the key example. It was Michael Bolton and it was Guns N' Roses and it was whatever, right? Number seven, guys. Talk about your uh, your your grade six dance right here. Number seven is gonna make you sweat by CNC Music Factory. Wow. Yeah. Big, big, big tune. Yeah. Good stuff on that one. We all know those singles. <laughs> <laughs> Number six is Cooley High Harmony. That's all one word, boys to men. Ah. 18 weeks on the charts for these guys. Nice. Uh, number f- number five is Luck of the Draw, Bonnie Raitt. With uh, Let's Give Them Something to Talk About. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a catchy tune. Yeah, obviously. it's, it's It has stood the test of time. Uh, CMB by Color Me Bad. Just the acronym is of the band is the name of the album. Is that is that um uh, I want to sex you up? I know that they're kind of like a one-hit wonder, but sometimes bands like put out one one album that has a single on it and it does really really well, and then people buy the second album expe- expecting it to be good, but there's nothing on it, so it, 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 it like this big jolt in album sales, and then people realize that it's garbage and don't don't buy it anymore. I think we need to research more Color Me Bad is what I'm saying. Yes, Noyan. I Want to Sex You Up is on this record. So this <laughs> was, so this wasn't the I'm buying the next record in hopes that it's great. <laughs> I kind of want to get you guys to guess this one. Number three is a very big black artist, female. Uh, she does like vocal jazz and her father is probably one of the biggest vocal jazz performers of all time and on this record she actually does like a very revolutionary type of recording where she sings with her father he is already deceased then she takes an old recording and sings it with him can you guys guess who this is natalie cole yes no end took all the cues you were absolutely right. yeah I, I had i had it at like the third word in and i was just like waiting i was like you're describing you're giving me too much now okay <laughs> natalie cole unforgettable i remember how big this was and how much of a revolutionary type of recording and song it was it had so much media attention that she sang with her father nat king cole on unforgettable it was wonderful yeah now drake does it with michael jackson yeah <laughs> Ugh, gross. guys number two this isn't that surprising metallica black album metallica makes sense yeah yeah Yeah. it's metallica there's another great example of a band who never made music videos up until the record right before this and were selling out stadiums and arenas and now this is like at their peak like they are huge at this point you know you think of metallica yeah this makes sense of course it's the black album this is this is enter sandman Uh, you know i i feel like metallica is like you know 
a, a whole podcast worth of conversation. Yeah, obviously. You know, like there's two Metallicas. There's pre-Black Album, there's post-Black Album, right? Yeah. So this is, they've made the decision that they are going to be a really, really big band. And that's why they are on the top of the charts. And number one, this is no surprise to me ever that it's a country artist at the number one spot in Billboard. Rope in the Wind, Garth Brooks. This is the first he debuted at number one this week. He also has his previous record is at number 14. I'll scroll down. It is at 54 weeks on the charts. Wow. Is number 14. And he debuted at number one with his follow-up record. Within 14 moves, he has two records on the charts. Garth Brooks is huge, man. Like, And I much respect to him to be prolific and strike while the iron is hot, too. To be like, I'm putting out a record. It came out in 91. 54 weeks later, I'm putting out another record. Like, good for you. Yeah. I remember seeing a video of his where he was playing a show where the Cowboys play and it was massive and I was just like who is this guy that can draw this many people because obviously I had you know no idea that age who he, who he was but can so, I name a Garth Brooks song no me neither I was thinking about that today it's like a number one selling artist I couldn't name one song arguably like the biggest one of the biggest country stars of like the last like 30 years well i mean i'd say well not to get into this debate because i don't have the stats in front of me but i'm gonna i would say number one i mean of the past 50 years this guy sold just millions and millions of records like was he I, the first like a uh, new country because you know there's a real divide where people would say yeah i don't know i i, 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 I can't go it either i'd not you know but that might have been the one that pushed it I don't think he's like the rights of spring of like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> new country. The whole circle. Yeah. 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 I'm sure there was uh, there was other like you know new country stars, and then he came in and and just showed everyone how to do it. Well, Noyan, with that reference to rights of spring, I think we've waited long enough. We've debated and we've talked uh, we've talked a lot about this era in music, but I think it's time that we go to the Joe Lally from Fugazi interview. So thanks very much, guys. It was amazing to talk with you both. I'm so glad that you got to come on and talk with me about this. Uh, I could have imagined talking to two better people about this era in music. So thanks so much for joining, everyone. Without further ado, this is my interview with Joe Lally of Fugazi. So thanks so much for doing this, Joe. Sure. Uh, this uh this issue that we're talking about on my podcast this month is uh September 1991 Spin magazine. Prince is on the cover. Pearl Jam is a featured as an up and coming band. NWA is interviewed, Third Base and Guns N' Roses. These are the main people featured. And yeah. then this month is the month that Nirvana Nevermind is released. So wow. yeah. <laughs> So pop music and the culture of music was about to change dramatically with, with the release of that record. What were your feelings about the culture of music at this time? Um, I, I have to say that um, with Nirvana coming out, I can at least kind of, I was trying to figure out like, how do I pinpoint this time? Because 
it's really hard to put together like the, you know a series of events because I don't go I never kept a diary I don't go through this stuff in my mind all the time whereas Ian is always dealing with archiving stuff and he kept a diary that he refers to to like put things in place right um, but because Nirvana is about to release Nevermind it means that we were just about to go to Australia oh wow. Our first trip to Australia, and <clears throat> if it's '91, then we have probably made a repeater and steady diet of nothing. Yes. Um, and then we really hear, even though Ian got like an advanced tape before they had to remix. Never mind. Dave kind of dropped by the house or whatever and played it, and it's like you know this good sounding rock record and they're like they didn't they thought it sounded too i don't know i forgot the issue was like it sounded too mainstream or something like okay. it sounded too good <laughs> okay and, you know they had to get the guy in to like make it sound nasty again or something and then uh, it, you know but anyway we it's because we went on that first trip to australia and we heard it every day almost every moment of every day that we were out in public because we were staying a bunch of days in melbourne to like hop to other places and so we stayed in the same hotel and it had a you know it had like a place we could eat and and just they were playing you know jukebox there and they were playing it over and over when we played a show the sound man played it when the show was over like it was played i mean it was just played every day of that trip and I didn't get to know the record very well because it immediately it became you know uh, what everyone is just I was it was saturated pop music so I couldn't even get a distance from it and judge it at all or have it you know and enjoy it I just heard it all the time so I was just like yeah this is nice but I could it took me a while to actually be able to step away from it and go like so what is this record now that I don't have to hear it like 24 hours a day, you know? <laughs> and, and of course, it's a great, you know, it's a fucking great sounding record. It's like, as always, just perfect vocal performance from him, you know? But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's that particular time. And as always in Pugazi, you know, mainstream music was mainstream music and it was just some other world. And so Spin was some, you know, kind of silly looking magazine because you had to open it up and then go through all these ads to get to what they were talking about. And then they would talk about things the way they do in music magazines. The, the real issue with all that stuff for me, what, you know, what I learned from, especially even by that point in the band, very early on when people would write about us, they referred to us as a post hardcore band. And I was like, suddenly, made sense, you know, that the guys who were playing jazz early on and they were told that they were playing jazz dismissed the word jazz, you know, because they were just like, don't, you know, describing like pigeonholing what I'm playing. It's just, they were just kind of, you know, bothered by it. And I was like, well, no wonder they felt that way. But at least the word jazz didn't sound like post-hardcore. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> We sounded like something after the fact of something that had already happened. And I was like, well, if this is what we are, like, I should just quit now. 
Like if this is all we ever get to be is defining this particular genre of music that's been described. Mm -hmm. Then what, like how gross is that? You know what I mean? So that, that's really what a lot of that, that voice of mainstream music meant to me is that it just didn't understand what was going on. So from, even though it had already started early on, by the time I was, you know, by 91, I was already like, this isn't what music is. Even what mainstream music is, even what the Nirvana record might mean to someone or the NWA record may have meant to people. You have to take that music and consume it for yourself and digest it for yourself and try and understand what it means to you on your own. Mm -hmm. But anything that's ever written about it, a review, the way other people talk about things, uh, the way culture starts to express things that come out of that record, none of that actually is what that music necessarily is to you personally when you take it in for yourself and get something from it. It's something that no one else can really fuck with. And the person who made it should really be focused on what it is they want to say next. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It really, they should not be affected by what people thought of it, what people wrote about it, what awards it may have, you know, offered them, how many records it sold, how much money came in. You really, you know what I mean? Because if you, if those are your ideas of success, then what do you do next? Because now you're successful. Right. You know, so a lot of that stuff is really where I think probably all of us were at, but definitely where I was at. And it was just about focusing on what we were trying to do, which was really inspire each other to make what we thought was great music. We enjoyed listening to music together with all the time we spent traveling to play, you know, in the van together, where you can really just like totally absorb music together as a band and and discuss it sort of critique it talk about the things you love about it and then hopefully take that into the discussion of what you're writing when you're writing and what's going on with with the next record you're making we're always trying to push forward even though our records always sound like us to me i know that we were trying to do something different each time you know and it and that really meant not paying attention to all this stuff. Oh, okay. Was that, you know, hard, was that hard to do though? I mean, it's always, you're always inundated with music and radio and things like that. Yeah. We were a weird band because we were, um, we, we were, you know, because we called the shots about our shows in order to keep the price the way we wanted it. We locked out a ton of fucking bands that might've wanted to play with us, mm-hmm. but then we weren't going to open for because we couldn't control the price. So then we were always our head. We were the headliner like all the time. You know, we did a show opening for Firehose. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a Sonic Youth show we played in D.C. once, you know, but that would have been a benefit to raise money for something that we may have gone on before Sonic Youth. But like, there's I, like those are the two I remember. I mean, because, you know, you're always arranging and creating your own situation to play. So they're just. That means like no festivals, no, you know what I mean? All of that like interaction with other bands, like we missed a lot of that. So we missed a lot of what turned into like sort of mainstream aspects of playing shows. 
was there any not regrets but do you wish there was some bands that you got to interact with and play with but you didn't get to because of that reason well sure i mean if there, you know what i mean who knows who like kind of what friendships we could have made or something you know what i mean but at the same time it's you know it was it was nice to do what you wanted to do and in your own way it's just you know part of the fallout of it or whatever was that so you just kind of go uh, huh oh yeah well <laughs> i guess we didn't do that but you know you can't have it all come yeah, on sure uh do you remember this article joe that is written about you in spin i know you read it do you remember this interaction because i'll just say for context for everyone listening that it there was uh an interviewer a journalist who was trying to write an article uh for spin and Fugazi were basically, as you've already sort of said, not interested in being interviewed by Spin. And there's a very small moment in this article where it talks about uh, how you and this interviewer had had a bit of a an argument back and forth, I think playfully, uh, about him trying to convince you to be in this magazine and you weren't interested. Do you remember that interaction at all? It's, yeah, it's funny because reading about it, I didn't remember um, the, the tone that the article implies that we had during, you know, an argument or something. It just seems heavier than I have any recollection of. Uh-huh. It just ends up sounding that way mm-hmm. in it. But it's clearly he couldn't have. Uh, well, if you're, you know what I mean? If you're not really talking about anything, all I was doing was. Uh, saying why it didn't interest me or something. So it's, sure. there's really nothing to get angry about. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's just that he keeps trying to um, up the ante of why I should talk to him or something. And then he turned it into like, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump out the window or I'm at the window ledge or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which, of course, just is like, <laughs> get a grip, man. Like, <laughs> you wish it was this, it meant anything to you, you know, which makes it even worse because... I mean, as far as it being silly, it's like clearly the guy, you know, he's just trying to write an article. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any, you know, anything invested in it to where he's going to jump out the window. Um, so it was, yeah, it was just a silly, it was just silly. Yeah. But I, but yeah, I can't, I mean, to, for what we act, the content of what we actually talked about, I mean, no, I don't. <laughs> any of it being that all that special. So I think it was just me going, well, no you know, to whatever. I think this article gives way more of a portrait of what kind of band you were than if you had just been interviewed by this person. Yeah, it's, it's really, it was just, I think in the end, therefore quite nice to us. Like, well, if they want to print an article about not us, not talking to them, that's the kind of article they should print because it really does reflect how we feel about the magazine because we did feel it, it really was an empty magazine. It's of course, whenever there was a new magazine that was going to write about bands so you could find out some shit, it was always kind of, it was always kind of interesting, but then there's, there's always a bit of a, a letdown from it because of the way that the approach of it, for example, around that same time, I could have the years wrong, but there was a, a thing that came out in DC and you know, now I'm not even going to remember the name of it and I and I hope I remember the guy's name I remember one guy's name Patrick Foster hopefully I'm correct but there was literally a one-page fanzine that came out in DC and I can't remember what it was called 
but it was literally a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, he would, there would be, you know, and it was just a Xerox sheet of paper. That way he didn't have to Xerox tons of paper, but may have been the front and the back, but he would, he would review shows and he would talk about them in such a pleasant way. Like it was very, um, it was much more about storytelling. It didn't necessarily even describe the show that he was at sometimes. He seemed to describe feelings and things that came to him because he saw a show. So there'd be like, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so at DC space, you know, and the date. And, and then he would talk about like visiting his aunt and some things that happened when he was a kid or something. You know what I mean? And it was really fucking entertaining. Nice. And it really did always give you, it really was much more like reading the lyrics to a Bob Dylan song. Then you could sit around and go like, oh, I love that song because it's about X. You actually don't know what the songs, you all have to talk about what the songs seem to imply lyrically. And everyone has their interpretation of it. So it's just kind of that. It was really good journalism. That's awesome. As far as trying to write about music, because it's really hard to write about music. Yeah, it certainly is. And I thought that was a really, that was a really good way to do it. And then you take this thing that all this money has gone into and absolute vodka, and you know, Salem cigarettes and whoever has put all this money into and it's there and it's shiny and it's like these pages of shit and you're just like this piece of paper that I get around town is actually totally interesting. Yeah. And this isn't, you know, so. No, you're, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's incredibly hard to write about music. You've always got maybe a moment with an artist and you're trying to dissect what they're doing and make some shiny story out of it, but it doesn't always work out. There was another thing. There was only one other quote pretty much from you in this article, but I thought it was really interesting where you pretty much had said, you know, after you said, I, I'm not interested in being interviewed in so many words that you said, this is all new to me, you know, like maybe being, I, I'm assuming that means like, you know, being approached by like bigger corporate magazines. And you said, I'm 27 and I feel like I've accomplished nothing. And that seemed odd to me. Like, I just wanted to ask you, like, what would, what did success and accomplishment mean to you at the time? Because in my mind, you had accomplished so much. Yeah, I, don't, I think that part, like reading that quote, I was like, huh. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's probably, there was probably part of me that was kind of like, you know, I live in a group house. I don't have, you know, health insurance, you know. I just, you know, that aspect of like the life that I, that I came from or was expected to live, you know, and, uh, and what I had decided to do. Cause if I, cause if there wasn't, if, if, if Ian hadn't asked me to play with him, I, pr I probably just had been set on being a roadie for bands that I liked, mm -hmm. you know, and that, and I, that would have always felt like I was living on the outskirts of things that, you know, my people in my family and people that I grew up with and people that I knew just did the normal things people did. But, um, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm referring to there. I think, I think it's because I did, I, I was aware that I'd walked away from, cause I did have a good paying, I had a government contractor kind of job that I quit to be a roadie for a band beef eater. And I had health insurance and paid, you know, these like paid benefits and like, They'd always give me a raise. I didn't even care about the job. I could have gone 
and studied anything to do with computers for free for the four years I worked for them, I could have got like a degree and so, you know, I could have learned to programmers. I could have taken that with me for the rest of my life, you know, and done all kinds of things with, uh, on the side while I did music, you know what I mean? But I, I just, I just didn't like that idea. Now I sit in, which is good because now I sit in front of the computer, like teaching all the time. And then I would have literally spent my whole life in front of the computer. And, and this way I didn't, I spent a lot of time traveling and playing music instead mm. during, you know, at least 20, 20 years or where 15 years of Bugazi and more. So, um, yeah, it's just, I, I have no idea. I suppose I just, I just had that kind of, uh, that feeling about being, you know, I don't know when someone's talking to you in a magazine, they just, a magazine like that, you feel like you're supposed to have done this, that, and the other thing that you can like list off. And I don't know that, you know, you're supposed to fulfill some mm -hmm. mainstream idea of accomplishment where of course I was doing what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't think that there was anything that there was, you know, that we could actually just hold up and go like, you know, I don't know, <laughs> because the other people in the magazine are like, we're here because there is, you know, we have a gold record because this happened and we sold that out and we fucking did this, that and the other thing, you know, because that's what people in this magazine do, mm -hmm. because you now have a record label behind you and you have like all the machinery in place that has actually paid for you to do that interview, you know, in a way like they've got, they're kind of paying the magazine to do that shit. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I, you know, I couldn't even articulate probably what was on my mind. So I said that. <laughs> sure. What was life like in the band at that time? Because when I kind of look at your career and what I've read, it seems like this would have been almost the one of the busiest times for the band. Um, so in 1991, you've, you've put out two full length records already within a year and you're touring most of the time and you're putting the records out on your own and you're booking your own tours and you're, you're managing yourself and you're responsible for all your own gear. I mean, you guys are the, it's, it's completely self-contained this band, like everything you do is on your own. I mean, that just seems so daunting and like uh, what was life like was it was it uh were you enjoying playing and touring were you stressed no it was really um it some some traveling was hard in the beginning like um i my you know my health didn't put up with it very well in the beginning but i eventually got used to it and did better the first trips to europe like we we toured america toward america and then it was kind of like, we can go to Europe. So then we would go to Europe and then America and then Europe and then America. But each of those trips to Europe, the, the cycle, we ended up in Europe in the freezing cold. Oh. And then it was kind of like, then when that trip to Australia came, it broke up the cycle. And we were like, oh, yeah, you know, we didn't have to go there when it was fucking freezing. Because like, <laughs> I, I would literally get like fucking bronchitis every time uh, we went there or, you know, I would just get really ill in Europe. Um, because we were playing, we'd still, we'd get the van in Holland and we'd play all these places where everybody's smoking hash. And, and it just like, it just killed me because I had actually stopped all of my bad behavior and my, and my body was not like reacting to it very well. Cause I had, was like, I just, I don't know. I had a lot of work to do now. And so like, I was ready to just like be focused on that for a change. Cause I, 
I was just, I was pretty self-destructive before that. Okay. So now this period of, of like straightening out, I have this kind of all the smoke, like the one hour you get to exercise every night is full of smoke. Nobody understands that. They just think you're like a straight edge prick or something, <laughs> which I, you know, I have nothing to do with when, when there was all of that talk, when my threat played, I was happily, you know, getting fucked up and drinking and smoking and taking whatever. Um, but I love the music. It just didn't encourage me to stop. But so I never taught, I never waved a flag about that stuff because I was too aware of having indulged for too long. Mm -hmm. So, uh, getting, getting used to that was probably the harder part. But then, um, when, you know, when we could do that and break it up into these tours of like, we'll go into Australia and then South America came into it, you know, but going to Australia and Japan had come into that. So it was really, it was really about writing songs and then getting out and, and testing them. So they would test based on where we were headed to, based on where we had been last, which was all, like I said, part of the cycle of what parts of the world people would have us in. So we were just trying to write music and then kind of test drive it see how it was working, finish writing that music. And when we were home from a tour, record that music. Things didn't line up like the record's coming out and we're going to tour that record. We might finish a tour that actually ends up being the second or third continent we were playing that music on. That record's coming out and it's done. Yeah. And, and we're set on writing the next group of music you know what i mean so in a way we were always kind of ahead of what was coming out okay. you know and it's just the way it worked and we were just like what what the hell are we going to do about that we're doing everything we can you know <laughs> we're not going to adhere to some schedule created around what you know we were doing what we could right on but it was really just because we love you know if you love doing that stuff it isn't it's it's hard work or whatever, I guess, in your body, but it's like, if you love doing it, you're just so happy you can do it. Right. And at this time, too, exactly what we were talking about before, where alternative rock is about to explode and dominate, and you guys are sort of at the forefront of that, uh, but not on a major label, and then I know that you're getting swarmed by major labels. How are you dealing with that too? Were you were you entertaining? I mean, I don't think that you were entertaining offers, but how were you? Were you were you constantly having to go to meetings, or were you just hanging up the phone? Oh no, we just we always deflected things. It was just that a, you know an offer would come either by, I think the original thing was by telephone or something to just go like there's you know this amount of music. It had to be by telephone. The internet wasn't even that yeah. popular. <laughs> But, uh, you know, people would, we would just get onto people's radar because so many EPs were sold of, you know, I think a publishing came to our attention because they were like, you know, there's a lot of these being sold. You guys aren't publishing what you're doing. And it was kind of like, should we do that? Because it's it's going to just get consumed by like, you know, whatever's selling the most, they're going to distribute it. They're going to get a hold of it. So then we started talking about it, but it took a really long time to actually then do it because we had to have somebody else like 
we look into this and see about signing us up for something, you know, and we ended up going to BMI or whatever. And that was just to be like, you know, documented to publish. Like, this is our publishing. We wrote the fucking music, you know. And whatever. It was all just slow. Discord was fairly slow about getting CDs made. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was fairly behind in like, hey, this is coming out on CD. <laughs> it was like a big deal, like years after like Repeater came out or something. You know? Right. I forgot the timeline of all that shit working. Anyway, um, you know, it was just to think about it in our world was to think about an outside voice. And there were already the four voices that we were used to dealing with. And it was pretty much enough. It was quite a handful as it was. So if we could talk amongst the four of us and be happy, we were like pretty happy with it, whatever it was. The idea of having somebody else to answer to was not going to work. Right. And that's kind of where it pretty much began and ended. So if somebody offered us something, we were just like, you know, it's not going to work for us. And by then it was pretty clear by 91 or whatever. It was pretty clear that like our fan base was not going to be very happy with us doing that either. So mm -hmm. not only were we going to ruin it for ourselves, we would also lose our audience is the way we looked at it. So it was like, <laughs> what part of this is good? Yeah. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. For so sure. it was, and then, then there was the third aspect, which was watching people we knew go for that because yeah, once the Nirvana thing happened, we started watching it take effect on what was our local scene of, bands that we knew, people that we knew that had already been bands. And then the newer bands growing, we saw that those bands, not only did established bands have to try to convince the label and maybe make a compilation of the music that involved albums they'd already released to try and sell through the label to like, I don't know, get the label to introduce the band before they made their hit record for the label. But then we had to watch new and growing bands skip the growing period of touring and becoming a real band right. to being courted by the label to like, hey, you guys seem pretty good. Do you think you're going to? And then the band would actually miss out on what it was to live together and travel together and see what they could do. For sure. You know? So it was really yeah, there was nothing about any of that that seemed like it was going to be the right thing for us to do. Mm -hmm. But, it didn't, you know, it just didn't get that far, really. Well, that's good. And you guys uh, you guys formed in 86, right? But then didn't play a, f a show until 87. Is that correct? Yeah, we, Ian and I started to play with Colin Sears. So Ian had Colin to play drums and me to play bass. And then we kind of set about as the three of us until Colin was uh, happier to like get back with Dagnasty to do a tour they were about to do. And so then Ian and I were looking for another drummer mm -hmm. and then got eventually got a chance to play with Brendan where we were like, that's who we should be playing with. But Brendan was in a band, Happy Go Lake. Right. So all of this took place during that year of 
you know, I came back from the tour with Beefeater in August of 86. So by September of 86, we are playing, and then it goes all the way around until September 3rd of 87 mm -hmm. that we do the first show with Brendan. Right. So in that time, happy, you know, all that happens, and Happy Go Lucky stops playing. And Brendan says he'll do that show with us, oh, okay. which happens as the three of us. Right. So, yeah, no, that's why I was wondering, like, why did it take, like, you guys started playing the year before you even played your first show. So I was wondering, like, what that timeline was, why it kind of took that long to, to play a first show. So I'm, I'm playing bass, like, sort of for real, because I had, um, I had tried playing bass for a while, and I played in a couple of bands that played a couple of shows each. And then I had an accident at work that cut these two fingers, one to the bone. And then I had to wait for that to heal. And that was about the time I had just started to play again when Beefeater was going out. And uh, that's when they kind of, that's when I, my life really changed because I kind of left this group of, you know, the people that I would hang out with were people that were always going to be thinking about getting fucked up. And some of them even who weren't, I was more focused on the people who were because <laughs> I was going <laughs> to get fucked up. And then I just need, and you know, it took me doing that to understand like I need to surround myself with people who are doing something else or I'm just going to fucking die because it, it's never like I got, it got that bad, but I wasn't taking care of myself. And now it was like nine years of me doing that, you know, because I started very young. So it was about 13 when I started taking just anything that was around. Okay. Pills that eventually would get into me going, okay, I will drink. Okay, I will smoke this, that, and the other thing. And um, it's just, you know, I just had a very self-destructive attitude about it all. So being able to just kind of stop that and then go out with a band and work and see what it was, because I loved Beefeater as a band that I loved you know, before that, I loved the Obsessed, but they had just broke up. So there was never any going out as a roadie for them. Okay. And then doing that for a van, I mean, that was just, it was mind boggling how much I loved that. And it was just living in a van, sleeping on people's floors and driving around the country. You know, it's the first time I ever saw the country. We went into Canada. We went all the way west. I had only been like to see a, you know, my relatives in Illinois. And then up in like New Jersey and New York. And then I went with my parents once to Maine. You know what I mean? It was just like my, I was the youngest. So I was doing, I have three siblings, but I, I was the youngest. So by then I was just doing this one trip with them. And so I saw Maine. But, but you know, I had never been anywhere. I'd never been on a plane yeah. until Fugazi went to England. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? So I just, I had never been out and around. So. Really, I was kind of like set on being a roadie because I loved Beefeater and no one seemed to understand who they were and they weren't gaining a following. And the tour sort of split the band and broke them up. They did two shows when they got home and then they, they stopped. Mm. And, and so I was kind of like, what the fuck? I really thought I would never be in a band because really? I love them, but I didn't understand that they were also out at the worst time of year, July and August. So kids weren't in school. There was no, there was none of that like university kind of backup mm. for university town to make a show really happen. 
Right. That, you know, I just didn't understand any of that aspect of it because I had nothing to base any of it on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I thought, well, if nobody likes them, what am I going to do? And then I went home and Ian asked me to play with him and he, he hadn't even seen me play bass, you know? How did that even happen then? What was that What was that first conversation where he asked you to play? Well, the, well I was at their house to start the tour because Tomas lived with Ian and he sung for Bee Theater. And then we ended the tour and I spent the night because I just returned the equipment and then was with Tomas to like, I didn't really have a place to go. So I was, I was just like, well, I'll do everything I can to keep kind of working for the band. And then um, if it's okay, I'll just sleep at your place. So we, I stayed in his room, which was really the living room of the house with a cardboard wall <laughs> separating it from where you went downstairs to the rest of the upstairs. <laughs> no, no, didn't even have a bed. Oh, famously slept on the floor with a rock for a pillow. What? <laughs> yeah. he's, he's just a very extreme guy to this day, and actually, he lives in that house again today. Really? This is this is not the Discord house. This is another house. The Discord house. That's where he lives oh, today. He lives there now. At some point in his life, he moved back in, and he he's the one like tenant living in the house. Because the label moved back into the house at some point, like kind of, there are not a bunch of people living there. There's just Onam who's there all the time, but they have the artwork back in the house and they've, you know, they've kind of like used it as like archiving the, the label and the, and Ian's office has always been there. Okay. So but he lives there again and, uh, and does sleep in the bed. Okay, good. But, uh, but we just slept, you know, so I slept on the floor there and then Ian took us out the next day to lunch to talk about the tour and stuff and Onam had uh, his name is Onam now but Tomas had been writing him while we were on tour and he just you know he knew I was someone that was serious about what I was doing I could you know he could see that I saw myself as a part of the band that I was a roadie for it, even though that didn't mean that I that I considered myself part of the band it's just that I was whether they wanted me to be or not I was totally that, I was that dedicated. I set up Kenny's drums so he barely had to move them. Okay. To be set with them to play. You know what I mean? They were like that close. Right. That, that's like what I was about. Mm -hmm. it, what can I explain about that? It's just that's what made me happy. That's wonderful. To make them happy. Mm -hmm. So I just was doing everything I could to be what they didn't know that they needed. You know what I mean? That's what made me happy. So I think for Ian, he just was like, this guy is serious about this band thing. And he wanted to start a band, you know. He wanted a band that worked. So he saw me, you know, roadie the two shows that Bee Theater played, but also they had me get up and sing. One of them I didn't, but one of them I did. And they would have me sing a Bad Brain song, like at the end of their set. And I did it because I had done that on tour with them. And some, you know, he was just like, well, he has rhythm. So, you know, they say he's playing the bass. So he, we just started doing that. But that time allowed Ian to also become a guitar player, singer. Okay. So I was kind of settling into really being able to play bass again because my hand has healed. And I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know how to play bass. I just played the songs, the bands I had been in, the two bands had written songs themselves. 
and I played in those two bands, you know, and so I knew those songs and then, you know, forgot those songs because I wasn't in the bands anymore playing them. So it was just like, that's what I did. You played in the band, you learn those. So I didn't know how to figure out other people's songs. I didn't know anything really about playing. So right. that's what we set out to do. And that's what we started doing. So like soon after, it seems like the ideals and like the principles of Fugazi were like really fully formed. Like you guys, it seemed like you knew what exactly what you wanted to accomplish. But I wanted to ask, like, was that, was it a gradual thing of just like learning to be in a band and in touring and like, obviously like just like being together and being in that space or was it, was there a definitive, like, this is what we want to accomplish with this we we don't want to like we want to do our own thing. You have to remember that like Ian's Ian's been running a label all that time. You know, before then, since 1980, mm -hmm. he's played in various bands. Brennan and Guy have played in bands, and so they're they're entering the thing and our ability to talk about what it is and how we want to maneuver it, how we want to handle it. It's just you know. Definitely was talked about before we ever played in '87. Nice. So Ian was Ian was probably always talking about how things, and I just would. It all sounded good to me. You know what I mean? Like I mean, shit. We're able to put out our own records. Like this is and that blew my mind when I understood that about bands that I had been going to see in DC. That there were people like not just Discord. There were other labels. There were people. These guys I saw at shows. They were in their own bands and they were putting out their own records. That was mind boggling. So it was, it totally made sense to be able to do your own music. And so then to be doing your music with someone who was serious about it and everyone seemed to know who my threat was. By the time we were playing our first show, there was already people. I remember someone early on, I don't know when it took place. Someone from Hawaii had contacted Ian and was like, there's a hardcore festival that we want you to play. And it's like, we didn't, I don't even know if we were the band yet or if we had the name or if we had played the first show. But Ian was like, he just kind of mentioned it to me and he was like, just doesn't sound like the kind of thing I want to do before I feel like we're a band. And that just made perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. I was like, why don't we have to like fly to Hawaii, get in front of all these people and we're still like trying to figure out like who we are. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, each step of what we took to grow as a band, which was to play this size venue and then this size and then this size, you know, it was just playing and playing and playing these little venues that might eventually step up into a bigger venue. And then depending on what town you're in, you know what I mean? We were taking it town by town. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very gradual process of any kind of growth as a band. And that was really, really suitable to the band it was sure. it was helpful to the band to grow that way right and because we understood our like parameters as a band and just really enjoyed that level of communication with people and it slowly we started to adapt at a larger audience in a place that more people were going to come and so the venue was bigger and then there were two nights there or whatever it was but then you'd go play a town and you were back to what you used to do Okay. It's a small town. How many people are going to come? You know, and so you just played the venue that was right for that town, and then moved on. And it was always a pleasant thing to do because that was awesome. 
that's where you really communicated and everything was more intimate again. So. And when you. It was awesome to do it that way. For sure. And when you eventually graduated to playing larger venues, because you had to, you just had a big enough audience that you had to fill these places and you're playing, you know, major centers like New York. What happened at those? Because I know how you guys really wanted to keep to the $5 cover charge and all ages as much as you could. When you're playing a larger venue in New York, how did that work? You obviously had to been dealing with like a promoter who wanted to charge more. So how did you, I don't know, how did you negotiate? There were years of not playing a venue, a proper venue in New York. You know, there were, I don't know how many years went by where we played Columbia University, you know, before a, a promoter outside of the guy who controlled the whole, whole town was like Ron Delsner. Everything was a Ron Delsner production. And he was going to decide how much the show was. So we were like, that's okay. We won't do the show. And then a university would do the show. So then we would play in the lunchroom of, you know, or whatever of, you know, so those shows happened until a, a promoter in New York, um, Chris Williamson, was like, I don't care if I lose money. I want to be the guy who puts on a Fugazi show in New York. And he brought us into the, um, the marquee. Mm -hmm. And we did two nights at the marquee. And they were $5. And I don't know how much money he lost on it or anything, but he was really happy with the show. That's because cool. the show was totally sold out and it was a success for two nights. And that's where like the black and white footage of like in instrument comes from, you know, it's without sound. So there's just like, you know, slow motion, black and white footage with, you know, some other like home recordings of us, you know, playing like our practices, you know, recorded. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, that's how things began until, I mean, he just kept stepping that up and going like, well, let's put you in the blah, blah, blah. And like make, and he would just always make things work. Okay. So he may have done whatever he did in the rest of his booking world, but he was just into doing the shows for us. He was trying to get us into Radio City Music Hall. Really? <laughs> that, never, that never happened, but he was just like, you know, for him, it was this challenge of what he could do in New York City right. with us. Would you Instead, we would play like the Ritz or something that didn't even do a show that often anymore. That had kind of not been in use. And then it would, maybe someone had got in there to start doing a show and he put us on in there. And I forget all the, you know, steps that took place there. But that's generally the way cities work, that people kept saying, well, you, you're not going to be able to do this in the future because you're, you're getting too big to be able to do but that never really happened because we just kept doing it as we wanted to do it in our own way. And it just meant doing a venue that we could do two or three nights in a venue or whatever it was. So, mm -hmm. And you never brought any uh, music to sell either, right? We didn't. Yeah, we didn't travel with merch. There, there was some shows that happened in the South once towards the end of the band where Discord just wanted to go like, why don't we just set up and sell um, and sell LP, you know, be able to sell LPs? Like, why don't we just kind of come to the people in a different way? 
And so it was just this other thing that they had to deal with. So they drove themselves down and set up all of Discord, not not Fugazi records. Oh, oh, that's cool. So that was kind of cool to have there, but it, yeah, kind of didn't matter. It, it's really a hard thing to explain. I, I remember being on tour with the Melvins where they were, they were my, you know, Cody and Dale were my backup band and I was playing my solo music and they were playing drums and, um, which I don't know what that looked like to people or sounded <laughs> like, but I did, I had in my mind at that time. But, um, I remember being out like to breakfast with them and like everybody like together eating and Dale goes like, well, what, what was it with you guys not selling shirts? <laughs> How do I explain that among these people who just did tours and the only way they could really make money was to sell some kind of merchandise to get through their touring, you know, because people weren't barely coming to see them, you know, to, but we couldn't, it, it just didn't make sense in their world, I think, to, for us. But I had to say, like, you know, it was what was right for us because these people were showing up and that's what they wanted to talk about. And we were like, well, you know, we, what did you think about the songs? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because the thing was is that we were blessed with an audience. We actually got an audience coming out to the places we played when we went out to play. It was never... There was always people interested in what Ian was doing. So. Gotcha. Okay. That, that's what made it different for us, but we didn't have to do that. And there were, there was just this time period of kids going and like, they came out with their parents, like money of like, I can spend this much on records, this much on the show. And then like, these people aren't selling anything. Like what's going on, you know? And we'd always be like, you can write to discord and we'll mail it to your house. You know, but we just don't bring it with us. And we don't, right. you can make your own shirt. You know, we just have to have this talk with kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty weird, you know. So then to explain that later just didn't really equate with people because we just could have made more money, you know. So it was like, well, I, how can I explain that I wasn't out to make more money? Because, of course, everybody wants more money. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, yeah, maybe I should have made more. I could have bought a house sooner or some shit, you know, but I was just happy to be doing things the way we wanted to do them. I just, I didn't really think that much about the future. I just wanted to do what we were doing and mm -hmm. enjoying doing it and making a statement about it. It was definitely part of it, you know, that we could survive controlling the record, you know, the price of the entry and, and our and our record prices were still affordable. Yeah. Right. So. I I know I've read that you you got offered Lollapalooza in 1993 and you turned it down. And I I feel like the you know the conversation we've had it's pretty obvious why. <laughs> but it, now festivals have become such a huge culture, and there's so many that are operating on reuniting bands. I assume that you guys have, you must have had some offers in the past 20 years from festivals to reunite. Well, we, yeah, I suppose that has come up. Um, but even when we were playing there, I mean, we did play like what would be called a festival, mm -hmm. like somewhere in Germany, you know, where it's this small town or we played the international pop underground festival. And that, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's, that's just different because it's like, it's three days of shows and then 
you walk over to this venue and there's a show in a coffee shop and then there's a show over there in a park and then there's a show in a theater and then there's a show over there. And it's just like, a, it's so cool to be able to do those things. But that's very different than Lollapalooza. Sure. And, you know, that, that aspect of not being able, I mean, if there, I guess there, had there been a $5 festival that took <laughs> place with enormous bands on it or that just got sold out, you know, with bands that we wanted to play with. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe they would have, maybe it would have happened. But, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, missing that kind of culture is something that we miss that aspect of it. But we went to some of those things to see friends play and it didn't make me want to play them. So that, you know what I mean? I never really missed any of that, but, but yeah, later we were offered, you know, it's weird though. Once, once you're offered uh, you know, a large amount of money to play this one show and then you, and then it undermines your entire history about not accepting that type of an offer. It immediately makes you go like, Oh, well, if it's going to fuck up my record of not having wanted to accept that kind of money, then it, then I'm going to need more money. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be satisfied with a quarter of a million is my take. It's actually, I'm going to need a million just for me. Yeah. When I'm, if I'm going to sell out, I want a million or two. Cause now a house is like, or even, you know, back when they were offering us that for a festival, a house would, could be a million. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like, it didn't even mean anything anymore. It's just a house. It's like, I'm at least going to need a house. And then I'm going to need like good money in the bank because I've, I've sold out my whole fucking career for it. So I'm going to need a million for the house and a million like invested in some shit to just do some shit I want to do or to <laughs> do what I want to do with my life or do something to help people or to, you know what I mean? To create a thing that actually does something in the society that's still so fucked up. So if it then starts out like, well, actually we need that's two we need eight million we need two million a piece you know what i mean like to get this thing going then you can easily turn people away it's like well actually that doesn't mean that much to us it's going to have to be a, they're like what <laughs> they're like we thought you were a fugazi that didn't really and then we're like well it's going to cost you a lot more than you think yeah yeah which is a, just a fun way to look at it. It's not like it was ever going to happen. So it just, but if you, if you try to look at it, that's what's going to happen. So fuck it. You know, it just isn't, there's no amount of money that's worth it. Cause I'm still happy to go like, you know, we did everything the way we wanted to do it. And to literally play one of those shows, it just turns out we're not a band that can get together and rehearse two hours of music and then go out and play that one show. We're just not a band. It would literally take us a year to do that because to do that kind of a, sh just even if it's the one show, we would have to like figure out who we are as a band. And that requires a lot of time together. And that's the thing that doesn't get in that, that doesn't come into play about Fugazi being Fugazi again. That's the big problem because I, I liken it to a, and I've said this a million times now, but it's like this big animal that you're waking up you know, this beast that you then have to feed and take care of 
every day. And so you don't want to just wake it up because if you do one show, it'll just fucking eat you after the show. And it'll be like, hey, you know, you said you're going to fucking feed me and shit. And then the band is just like, we just, we just said we'd do the one show. Cause like, and then we're dead, you know, yeah. and that's that. And that means that that thing will be the thing that kills you because you can't. I mean, that's why we went on hiatus in the first place is like, you know, if we're just going to do this part of the way, maybe we better just put it aside until we can do it all of the way again. And it just turns out that hasn't shown up because it just isn't something we can kind of do, mm-hmm. partially do. It's either all the way or we can't really do it. And that really means an investment of your personal time. And life. I missed weddings, funerals. I missed so many fucking things in my life that happened within my family that, you know, I've come into like, contact with cousins and shit and they were like oh right you didn't come to you know my wedding my sister's wedding you didn't come to the shit you were invited to because that's where we didn't see each other because you're in their bed they're kind of like oh you're still doing you're still doing music you know what i mean like that was that reason at the time why you didn't come 10 20 years ago you didn't show up at this wedding and i didn't see you and so i haven't seen you for 40 years you know what I mean? That's you. That's part of your life to do that, to do a band like that. For sure. And so to do that again is, you know, to invest that again. And he he's lives in, and I don't want to take away his life. Why the hell should he move from where he lives? You know. But that's what it would take, like all this time together. That's kind of hard to explain because so many people live in different parts of the world. They get together, they practice, they go out on tour, they make a fucking shit ton of money. And they go all back home to where they live, and they're all perfectly happy doing it. And sure, that it would be kind of nice to have been in one of those bands to be able to do that. But it just turns out I wasn't in one of those bands. That's all. I, I was in a different one of those bands. It's why we got you know it's so hard for Fugazi to like spend the time together to play. And I sure I'd be totally interested in that. I'd love to be spending enough time with those guys to find out the music we'd make now. And then to go around the world and play it, if I, you know, I don't even actually feel that good about going around the world to play music since everything happened with uh, COVID. Because I'm like, maybe this isn't something we should do. And definitely you too shouldn't do it and, and, and create a trillion plastic bottles to finance their tour, to make part of their tour happen. It's disgusting. Uh-huh. So that part of our culture, like, I don't even feel good about it anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I have to get faced with it because it still isn't really happening. But when it does, I'll find out whether I really want to do that or not, or I'm going to stick around D.C. more. I don't know. Right. Do you guys- I can't drive there. I don't know if I'm playing there. Yeah. We'll find out. So, yeah, it always seems it just seems like you there's, you know, never say never, but it doesn't seem like there's any reason to do it. Totally. Thanks very much, Joe. That uh, I was it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you about all of this. And uh, I hope uh, I hope you're having a great weekend. I am. And I was happy to do it. So thanks for talking. OK, thank you very much, Joe. OK. OK. Bye bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to 10 CDs for a Penny. 
And if you like this episode, listen to all the other ones and then tell everybody you know about this podcast and subscribe to it on any platform that you're using. And if you're a big Fugazi fan, I bet you liked this. I bet other Fugazi fans would like this. Tell all your friends. We'll see you next time.